Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 12 on March 26, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also have a blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is David Kearns, who is the coordinator of the Concern Network. I also check in with Tim Pickering, Vice President of the Association of Air Medical Services, regarding the Ames Spring Conference in the first response section. Before I introduce my guest, I want to go over some feedback from episode 11 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I heard from Ken Williams again, who had a suggestion on accumulating data from quarterly financial results information of publicly traded air medical organizations. His voicemail said this, Hi, Ken Austin Williams calling with a little short uh, query. Uh, listening to Podcast 11, you're going over the quarterly results of a number of the larger vendors. It occurred to me that um, if you did a little bit of data crunching on the various majors, you know, PHI, OmniFlight, uh, Air Methods, and so on, that anybody that does actually have to publish quarterly results, uh, we should get a much better picture of how many uh, flight hours, how many accidents, how many um, patient transports, um, and, and be able to work that into some sort of a state of, you know, the state of the industry uh, safety-wise per quarter as well. Uh, granted, that's not going to cover all the helicopters, but I bet you we can get somewhere in excess of 80% of them that way. Um, anyway, just a thought. Thanks. Bye. Well, Ken, I'm not sure if anyone in our community is doing this, but it is an interesting idea. I know the Association of Air Medical Services has for years been working on a voluntary reporting system to get at this data, but if any of our listeners uh, has some other information, please contact me and I'll put that on the show. I also heard from David Kearns that my interview of him on the Alaris Med System 3 pump in episode 10 did generate a lot of feedback and assistance to him for his letter writing campaign. I also heard that Dan Hankins received a bit of ribbing at the recent Association of Air Medical Services board meeting about his introduction in episode 11 regarding his cat rescue service. I believe many of us did not know about this wonderful service that Dan and his wife provide. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. 
I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, to be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email me or call me if it is not. I have been trying to identify all Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. I did hear from a few more. I cannot link Facebook group pages, and therefore, if you are thinking of putting your program on Facebook, do use a fan page rather than a group. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. Well, unfortunately, I start the news this week with some very sad news out of Tennessee with the crash of a hospital wing helicopter early yesterday morning, Thursday, March 25th. 58-year-old pilot Doug Phillips, 36-year-old nurse Misty Brogdon, and 48-year-old nurse Cindy Parker were killed in the crash that allegedly happened in a thunderstorm in western Tennessee. They were on a return trip to Brownsville from delivering a patient in Jackson when the crash was reported. The American Eurocopter A-Star helicopter crashed in a field near Brownsville about 6 a.m. Central Daylight Time, according to Jeremy Height, Tennessee Emergency Management Agency spokesman in Nashville. Factory workers who were nearby reported the incident when they saw a large burst of lightning, which was followed by an orange glow, in the area where the crash had taken place. Haywood County Sheriff Melvin Bond shared that while the crew members were in communication with their base, all of a sudden radio contact was lost. The pilot gave no indication that a problem had developed. Lynn Lunsford, a spokesman with the Federal Aviation Administration in Fort Worth, said that the pilot was not in contact with air traffic controllers at the time of the crash and there had been no indication of problems. An official with the National Weather Service in Memphis told the Associated Press on Thursday that his agency would submit a report saying weather could have played a role in the incident. Asked about the company's weather policy, hospital wing officials referred questions to Alan Burnett, the company's program director and chief operating officer, who said Thursday afternoon he could not comment because of the federal investigation of the crash. Company officials have said they have suspended operations until the investigation is complete. Stormy weather was why an AeroVac life team crew chose not to make a Parsons to Jackson flight at 4.02 a.m. Thursday, but it was not clear whether the call was for the same patient. The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board announced it sent a team of nine investigators who were on the scene Thursday afternoon. The team has recovered two aviation instruments that could give them more information on the cause of the crash. Hospital Wing is a not-for-profit air medical transport consortium service and was founded in 1985. The service works with the Methodist Labonher Healthcare, Baptist Memorial Hospital, the Regional Medical Center at Memphis, St. Francis Hospital, and Crittenden Memorial Hospital. I want to pass on our air medical community's deepest sympathy, thoughts, and prayers to the crew, family, and friends of the Hospital Wing program. 
there have already been several articles critical of air medical transport safety, and I will cover those along with a follow-up on the crash in the next episode. Other big news is the passage of health care reform legislation. Democrats have hailed the approval of legislation extending health care to an additional 32 million Americans as a historic advance in social justice. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, said it was comparable to the establishment of Medicare and Social Security. The bill was passed in the House on Sunday evening by just seven votes. Republicans have vowed to continue to challenge it, saying it is too expensive and promotes big government. Senator John McCain warned that outside the Capitol, the American people are very angry. They don't like it, and we're going to repeal this. Victory was assured only hours before voting started when the president agreed to a deal with conservative Democrats for an executive order that money provided by the bill could not be used for abortions. Under the plan, health insurance will be extended to nearly all Americans, new taxes will be imposed on the wealthy, and restrictive insurance practices such as refusing to cover people with pre-existing medical conditions will be outlawed. The bill's final approval represented a stunning turnaround from January when it was considered dead after Democrats lost their 60-seat majority in the Senate, which is required to defeat a filibuster, a method used to delay or block the passage of legislation. The key elements are that it will cost $940 billion over 10 years, would reduce the deficit by $143 billion. It would expand coverage to 32 million Americans currently uninsured. The prescription drug coverage cap under Medicare would be closed. Uh, There would be expanded Medicaid coverage to include families under 65 with gross incomes of up to 133% of federal poverty level and all childless adults. Insurers can no longer deny coverage to those with pre-existing conditions, and uninsured and self-employed will be able to purchase insurance through state-based exchanges. Low-income individuals and families wanting to purchase their own health insurance will be eligible for subsidies. Those not covered by Medicaid or Medicare must be insured or face a fine. Employers offering workers pricier plans will be subject to a tax on the excess premium. To avoid a second Senate vote, the House also approved on Sunday evening a package of reconciliation fixes agreed beforehand between House and Senate Democrats and the White House, amending the bill that senators adopted in December. The Republicans say they will seek to repeal the measure challenge its constitutionality, and coordinate efforts in state legislators to block its implementation. The White House plans to launch a campaign this week to persuade skeptical Americans that the reforms offer immediate benefits to them and represent the most significant efforts to reduce the federal deficit since 1990s. The Senate and House both voted yesterday to clear a further compromise bill with final changes to the legislation signed into the law on the 23rd. The revised bill passed yesterday without Republican support on votes of 56 to 43 in the Senate and 220 to 207 in the House. 
it also scales back attacks on high-end insurance plans contained in the health care law. It also adds a new levy on investment income and revamps the college student loan program. During more than two days of debate that stretched into early morning hours, Senate Democrats fought off dozens of Republican amendments and efforts to derail the legislation that included the revisions. In a move that infuriated Republicans, Democrats used a budget process called reconciliation that enabled them to pass the changes without any Republican backing. Healthcare provider groups hailed the president's historic signing of the Senate's health care reform bill. America's hospitals have long been committed to ensuring health care coverage for all. While the path to universal coverage has been long, today we are closer than ever to reaching this important goal, said Richard Umbenstock, president and CEO of the American Hospital Association. James Rohack, president of the American Medical Association, specifically praised the bill's provisions to increase payments for primary care physicians caring for Medicaid patients and bonus payments for physicians in underserved areas, as well as improving competition and choice in the insurance marketplace and promoting prevention and wellness and clinical comparative effectiveness research. Physicians see firsthand the pain and heartbreak that being uninsured causes in the lives of American patients. Today, we move forward to start to ease that pain, Rohack said in a written statement. Mark Covale, president and CEO of the National Association of Psychiatric Health Systems, was pleased the legislation would offer mental health and substance abuse benefits through the new health exchanges for small businesses and the individual market. Republicans despondent over passage of the health care bill are consoling themselves with the prospect that Democrats will pay a price come November. But that's already uh, up for debate on how high that price will be. Clearly, some Democrats who supported the bill did so at their own peril, as the National Republican Congressional Committee is targeting some 40 Democrats for their support of the health legislation. Republicans need to win 40 more seats to regain control of the House. Historically, a first-term president's party has almost always lost seats during midterm elections, and enthusiasm among Republicans has been notably stronger this year than among Democrats, which should translate into stronger GOP turnout. But winning that many seats is still a tall order. Some Republican strategists are claiming that the health vote provides them enough of a target to meet their goal. Lawsuits by 14 states seeking to scuttle health care legislation have little chance of success in the face of the broad powers granted to Congress by the U.S. Constitution. Thirteen states, led by Florida, said the law signed yesterday illegally places a physical burden on their cash-strapped budgets with an expansion of state-run Medicaid. Virginia filed a separate suit contending the individual mandate requiring people to buy insurance exceeds Congress's power. It's unlikely to succeed, said Jack Balkin, a professor at Yale Law School in New Haven, Connecticut, of the effort by the states, equating the new law to Congress's power to levy taxes. Congress has the ability to force people to pay taxes. The 13 states joining in the lawsuit 
filed in federal court in Pensacola, Florida, claimed that the act represents an unprecedented encroachment on the liberty of individuals living in the plaintiff's respective states by mandating that all citizens and legal residents of the United States have qualifying health care coverage or pay a tax penalty. Joining Florida in the suit are Alabama, Colorado, Idaho, Louisiana, Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, and Washington. Along with the separate suit by Virginia filed in federal court in Richmond, the states asked the courts to declare the law unconstitutional and seek to bar its enforcements. The complaints were filed moments after Obama signed the legislation. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters yesterday that legislation was carefully written and predicted it would withstand the legal challenges. Robert Kaufman, a public policy professor at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, who calls himself a fervent opponent of the new health law, said chances are slim that legislation by the states will reverse it. The issue is whether this is constitutional not whether it is wise, said Kaufman, who is also an attorney. Supreme Court decisions since Roosevelt have tended to support a broad reading of the Constitution in allowing the federal government to regulate interstate commerce, Kaufman said. Drug makers and health insurers will gain millions of customers under the legislation. The industry also will pay new fees to the government and face stricter rules that may narrow profit margins and could possibly fuel mergers. The bill expands coverage to 32 million uninsured Americans, according to congressional number crunchers, and that means more sales for Pfizer Incorporated, the world's largest drug maker, United Healthcare Group, the largest health insurer, and a cluster of companies led by Amerigroup Corp., that specialize in managing services through Medicaid, a program that will grow in the remake. Drug makers who took part early in the negotiations with the Senate Finance Committee and the White House may have the most to gain. More health care coverage makes a difference in demand for drug products, and people will also not have to skip doses of medic- medicines to save money. The bill also closes a coverage gap in Medicare payments known as the donut hole. While the industry pays $28 billion in fees over nine years to help the elderly afford drugs, it avoided requirements to have complicated pricing agreements with the government under the Medicare program. For health insurers, the potential increase in customers will be tempered by subsidy cuts by custom Medicare Advantage plans offered to the elderly and the prospect of new regulations. The industry, through its trade group America's Health Insurance Plans, argued as recently as March 18th that the legislation won't control cost and that people will still wait until they're sick to buy coverage. Biotechnology companies, a group led by Amgen based in California, won 12 years of protection from generic medicines derived from proteins. The generics industry, led by Mylan Incorporated, based in Pennsylvania, and Teva Pharmaceutical Industries Limited, based in Israel, won a reprieve from a proposed ban on legal settlements in which the drug makers are paid by brand name manufacturers to delay introduction of cheaper copies. 
Hospitals, a group led by Community Health Systems, Inc. of Tennessee, will have more paying customers and less bad debt as a result. Still, that won't happen until 2014, meaning hospitals will look for mergers. Makers of medical devices, Medtronic Incorporated of Minneapolis among them, are likely to benefit the least. The industry will pay a 2.3% excise tax on certain devices starting in 2013 and may not gain the same revenue boost as pharmaceutical companies, insurers, and hospitals. Additionally, the health care bill may boost employment at small businesses this year, according to Goldman Sachs economist Alec Phillips. The government will provide a tax credit for companies employing fewer than 25 workers to offer insurance. Firms with fewer than 10 workers may have the most to gain because they will receive a 35% subsidy to help pay premiums, Phillips said. Businesses with fewer than 50 employees accounted for about 51% of net job growth in the seven years leading up to the recession that started in December 2007, according to Labor Department data. The new law, to be phased in over several years, also places tax penalties on firms with more than 50 employees that don't provide health insurance. House Democratic leaders on Wednesday said they are concerned about the personal safety of lawmakers because of threats linked to intense opposition to the new health care law. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said that the FBI and Capitol Police briefed Democrats on how to handle perceived security threats and that those who felt that they were at risk would be getting attention from the proper authorities. Hoyer said more than 10 Democratic lawmakers have reported incidents, but he did not say whether they are now receiving added security. Normally, only those in leadership positions have personal security guards. Protests swirled around the Capitol during the debate on health care overhaul last weekend. Protesters hurled racial slurs at several black lawmakers, and one protester spat at a black lawmaker. Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, the Democratic whip and a senior member of the Congressional Black Caucus, said the scene on the street Saturday was very reminiscent of our history. Bricks were thrown through windows at two Democratic Party officials in western New York, including a district office of Representative Louise Slaughter, who played a key role in getting the health care bill through the House. The Tucson, Arizona Congressional Office of Representative Gabriel Giffords was also vandalized a few hours after the House vote. Hoyer also said there were incidents such as people yelling that Democratic lawmakers should be put on firing lines and posters with the face of lawmakers in the crosshairs of a target. While not directly criticizing Republicans, Hoyer said that any show of appreciation for such actions encourages that action. Over the weekend, several Republicans cheered on protesters waving signs such as kill the bill outside the Capitol. House Republican leader John Bonner of Ohio said in a statement that while many Americans are angry over passage of the health care bill, violence and threats are unacceptable. That's not the American way, Bonner said. We need to take the anger and channel it into a positive change. And now on to other news. A combination of pilot error 
an ill-equipped aircraft, and a lack of safety alerts from DuPage Airport contributed to the Air Angels helicopter crash that killed four people in Aurora, Illinois in 2008, according to the National Transportation Safety Board. The NTSB released its report last week on the October 15, 2008 crash that killed a one-year-old baby and three Air Angels crew members flying with her. The Air Angels Bell 222 helicopter was on its way from Valley West Community Hospital in Sandwich to Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago when it struck the WBIG radio tower in Aurora. The final report points to inadequate pre-fight planning and the pilot should have identified the obstacles along the route of flight, including the radio station tower. The report also charges the pilot with flying too low when it struck a wire 50 feet below the top of the 734-foot tower. The helicopter was flying under visual flight rules, meaning that skies were clear enough to allow the pilot to see obstacles and avoid them. Visibility was 10 miles, according to the report. The helicopter was not equipped with a train awareness warning system. The radio station tower was well known according to local pilots and video footage from the crash showed that the tower lights were working near the time of the accident. The NTSB investigation turned up no defects in the helicopter that would have existed before the crash. Contributing to the accident, according to the report, was the air traffic controller at DuPage Airport who did not issue a proper safety alert to the helicopter pilot. NTSB investigators determined that the helicopter's flight path, as tracked on radar, put it directly in line with the radio station tower, and FAA regulators require controllers to issue safety alerts to pilots in potentially hazardous situations. According to the report, the controller was tending to administrative duties at the time of the accident and was not monitoring the aircraft's progress sufficiently to watch for hazards and issue safety alerts as required. The controller's actions are listed as a factor in the accident, not one of the causes. NTSB Vice Chairman Christopher Hart filed a dissenting statement to the report because he was concerned that including the air traffic controller as a contributing factor takes responsibility off of the pilot. This could lead to pilots becoming less vigilant when flying under visual flight rules. Hart also noted that for controllers, helping a VFR pilot is voluntary and discretionary, and listing this controller as a contributing factor in the 2008 accident may discourage other controllers from assisting those pilots in the future. The Senate has passed a bill that would speed the modernization of the nation's antiquated air traffic control system by replacing radar with GPS technology by a vote of 93 to 0 this week. The 34.5 billion dollar bill requires key elements of the Federal Aviation Administration's next-gen program to be in place as soon as 2014. The new system is expected to alleviate airport congestion and delays by allowing planes to take more direct routes and fly closer to each other. The bill also contains several measures expected to boost safety in response to last year's crash of a regional airliner near Buffalo, New York, which took 50 lives. 
The bill bans pilots from using laptops and other personal electronic devices in the cockpit. It requires the FAA to update how many hours airlines can require pilots to be on duty and how much rest they must get between workdays. The FAA is to require airlines to tighten pilot hiring criteria and have remedial training programs for pilots who fail skills tests or make errors. The bill also would double the frequency of FAA inspections of all foreign aircraft repair and maintenance stations that work on U.S. planes, requiring them twice a year instead of annually. Airlines used to perform nearly all major maintenance and repair work using their own workers. Over the last two decades, they have increasingly outsourced the work to domestic and foreign repair stations using cheaper non-union labor. The House passed a three-year FAA funding bill last year that includes several contentious labor provisions not part of the Senate bill. The House would also raise the passenger facility charge, which goes to airports to pay for improvements from $4.50 per ticket to $7. Differences between the two bills remain to be worked out. In a continuing effort to provide critical care transport services to communities throughout Indiana and to better Align with Clarion Health regionally, the Lifeline Critical Care Transport Program will soon expand service to Lafayette and Muncie. Beginning July 2010, Lifeline will add two new bases, which would complement their four existing bases in Indianapolis, Columbus, Kokomo, and Terre Haute, Indiana. The new base locations will ensure accessibility to and enable Clarion Arnett and Ball Memorial Hospitals to serve as regional centers for critical care and patient needs in east and west central Indiana. Clarion includes Methodist Hospital, the largest level one trauma center in the state, and the Riley Hospital for Children, the region's only level one pediatric trauma center. PHI Air Medical Dove Flight, which is stationed at Purdue University Airport in West Lafayette, also takes critical care patients by helicopter to and from hospitals in the Lafayette area. Aravac Life Team has expanded its service area in northern West Virginia with opening a base in Wetzel County. The base is housed on the grounds of the Wetzel County Hospital in New Martinsville. The Wetzel County base is the third in West Virginia. Other bases are located in Parkersburg and Logan. The new base will provide employment for 12 to 15 individuals and serve communities within a 70-mile radius of Wetzel County. Wetzel County Hospital CEO George Kausch said the presence of Aravac Life Team will be another asset to the community. The helicopter is equipped with state-of-the-art medical equipment, including NVG or night vision goggles. In other Aravac Life Team news, the service plans to open a new base in Hardinsburg, Kentucky, 65 miles southwest of Louisville in June. The new base will be the 91st base in the company's network, the 9th in Kentucky, and its furthest north. Other Kentucky bases are in Hopkinsville, Albany, Middlesboro, Campbellsville, Bowling Green, Harlan, Danville, and Whitley County. Wilmot One's inaugural flight touched down at the Bristol Speedway last Thursday as NASCAR fans started pouring into the Tri-Cities for last weekend's Food City 500. 
Wellmont is a nonprofit healthcare system that owns eight hospitals in Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia, including Bristol Regional Medical Center and Holston Valley Medical Center in Kingsport, Tennessee. The system also is the official medical provider for all Speedway events. Prior to moving to the Speedway, Wellmont's helicopter service was based at Greenville's Regional Hospital, a location which was at the far edge of its service area, which stretches from the Virginia-Kentucky border to the Tennessee-North Carolina border. The new location also is closer to the region's three trauma centers in Bristol, Kingsport, and Johnson City, Tennessee. The hospital system and the Speedway started working out a deal in October 2009 and had a contract inked by the end of January this year. A new American Eurocopter EC-145 helicopter joined Ministry Healthcare's Spirit Medical Transportation Fleet in Marshfield, Wisconsin this week. Pilots are currently training and hope to have it in service in a few weeks. The leader of the New Democratic Party in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada, is calling for the permanent air ambulance to be stationed in western Labrador. A 56-year-old man fell from a platform at the Iron Ore Company of Canada's Labrador City's mine and died while waiting for an air ambulance to arrive last week. Seven air ambulance companies operating throughout Arizona have agreed to major changes in how pilots will communicate with each other as they approach Flagstaff Medical Center. The changes include a well-defined approach path laid out miles before the hospital and a schedule for radio broadcast on an assigned frequency intended for other pilots operating in the area to announce their exact location estimated time of arrival, and route being used. The new protocols come slightly less than 20 months after the June 2008 mid-air collision of two medical helicopters that killed seven over the skies of Flagstaff. But some operators worry about the lack of a backup plan. The protocol's sole reliance on a single air-to-air frequency on a fixed aviation band radio does not take into account that topographical features in northern Arizona, including the Grand Canyon and various mountain ranges, might block radio signals. The seven ambulance companies that have signed off on the new safety protocols are Yuma-based CareFlight Aviation, Arizona Department of Public Safety, Native Air OmniFlight, Phoenix-based PHI Medical Helicopters, Tucson-based MedTrans, Page-based Classic Lifeguard, and Air Methods. In a related story, the FAA is still studying a request by Flagstaff Medical Center and Air Methods to extend the official airspace at Flagstaff's Pulliam Airport to include the hospital's helipad. The change, if approved, would require air ambulance pilots to communicate with air traffic controllers when the airport tower is open. It would also likely establish new communication procedures when the tower is closed. The Monroe County Commission in Florida postponed voting on a controversial hospital transfer resolution last week after vehement opposition from medical professionals. The resolution would make it a requirement for all Florida Keys residents to be made aware of their rights to use TraumaStar, a taxpayer-funded air ambulance service, for hospital transfers. 
TraumaStar is free of charge outside what insurance providers reimburse. Medical professionals said that decisions should be based on the clinical judgment and not financial considerations. The Connecticut state budget crisis that threatened to ground LifeStar last year when Governor Jody Rell recommended slashing the program's $1.4 million subsidy funding. If the funding cut had gone through as proposed, LifeStar would have lost roughly 20% of its budget, put one of its two helicopters out of commission, and served 40% fewer patients this year. It's almost impossible to generate more revenue for the program because the rates are set by the state and allow for small increases each year for inflation. The state subsidy helps keep the operating shortfall to about $120,000 a year, and the state has no plans to reduce the program's funding as part of budget planning for 2010 and 2011. In a follow-up to a previous story in Episode 11 of the podcast, the Virginia State Finance Committee proposed this week to raise a portion of the total fee for registering a vehicle in the state by $2 to $6.25. This would raise money for the fire and rescue squads and the state police medical helicopter service called MedFlight. The additional $2 would generate more than $10 million for the state's general fund. The proposal presents a new wrinkle in what has been a spirited fight involving rescue squads and fire departments trying to fight off gubernatorial raids on the Four for Life Fund. The fund pays for equipment grants to fire and rescue emergency crews, essential training for paramedics, support for volunteer rescue squads, and the operation of the State Office of Emergency Medical Services. The Senate proposal would fund the med flight operation entirely out of the Four for Life Fund at $3.1 million a year, while restoring diverted money back to its original purpose for training, equipping, and overseeing local emergency services. Aeromed 3 from Tampa General Hospital made an emergency landing in Pasco County last Friday due to a strange vibration. The helicopter, based in Wildwood, Florida, had just picked up a patient who fell in Citrus County and was headed to Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida. Another medical helicopter, Aeromed 1, was dispatched to retrieve the patient, which continued on to Tampa General. The delay took 10 minutes, but the patient's care was not compromised by the delay, and the man is in good condition at Tampa General Hospital, according to a Tampa General official. No one was hurt when a bird struck the right side of an Arch Air Medical Service helicopter windshield this week. Spokesman Bob Abrams said bird strikes are not as common for helicopters as they are for airplanes and said that Arch helicopters are involved in bird strikes about once in every 400 flights. In another story regarding Arch, the parents of a deceased woman have filed suit against Air Methods Corporation, the parent company of Arch, and an Arch employee who helped transport the woman to a hospital. They are claiming that Arch medical crew member incorrectly inserted an esophageal tube into the woman which caused her death. In the four-count suit, the plaintiffs seek a judgment of more than $100,000 and a judgment for the woman's lost wages, medical expenses, and her pain and suffering. 
The first flight of Sikorsky's second S-76D have been completed in Florida. The aircraft is the latest upgrade of the popular S-76 helicopter. Among the features of the S-76D are all-composite, flaw-tolerant main rotor blade system, an advanced avionics system with autopilot, dual rotor speed for quiet mode operation, including active vibration control, the Pratt & Whitney 210S engines, and an optional rotor ice protection system for all-weather capability. The S-76D helicopter will also offer an increase in useful load and extended range compared to the S-76C. Richmond-based Telejet International has secured a two-year, $9 million contract extension to provide the British Columbia Ambulance Service with dedicated Learjet Air Medical Services. The contract commences in April of this year. Telejet International is a Canadian-owned company and has been operating dedicated air medically equipped aircraft for 12 years. Helicopter Association International, or HAI, has released a new online aviation wire strike safety awareness video called Surviving the Wires Environment. The video is posted on the HAI website and can be viewed for free by HAI members and non-members. The video was produced in cooperation with Southern California Edison and Aegis Insurance Services. According to the Federal Aviation Administration, wire and obstruction strikes are the top operational cause for fatal rotorcraft accidents. Over the last decade, there has been an average of one aviation obstruction strike every five days in the U.S. Nearly 30% of all collisions are fatal, and the number nearly doubles when the aircraft operating in or around IFR conditions or at night. The safety video identifies the key hazards and issues every pilot needs to know and understand to be safer when operating in low-level flight operations. The story is told through interviews with pilots who have survived obstruction collisions and features comments from some of the leading experts in aviation collision avoidance. The video producers, however, emphasize that the video is not a substitute for a formal wire avoidance training program. The operator of an air ambulance service based in northwestern Alberta, Canada, has served a lockout notice to its employees last week. Advanced Paramedic Limited, which is based at the airport in Peace River, employs nine paramedics and emergency medical technicians. The private company provides emergency health services to Edmonton from Peace River and surrounding communities. The Air Ambulance employees voted to join the Health Sciences Association of Alberta in August 2009 and have since been trying to reach a first contract. The association is asking the Alberta Labor Relations Board to dismiss the company's lockout notice. Alberta Health Sciences contracted out the Peace River Air Ambulance's service to Advanced Paramedic in February 2003. The association says the two sides are far apart on many issues, including scheduling. Employees now work six days in a row on a 24-hour work cycle, which the association says compromises the health and safety of both patient and healthcare worker. 
The Northern Territory Australia Aero Medical Service has come under fire after a Port Keats woman had to wait for a medical flight to Darwin on a hospital gurney for 36 hours with a broken leg. It is understood nursing staff believe it is the longest anyone from Wadi had waited for aeromedical transport. The Territory Health Department says its medical retrieval service was faced with an unusual and exceptional demand earlier this week dealing with 24 patients in a 30-hour period. The director of retrieval at the Royal Darwin Hospital, Dr. Fry R., said out of the 24 patients that needed to be flown to Darwin, there were 16 in the most urgent category requiring immediate transport. The woman with the broken leg was clinically assessed and triaged as a priority three, and category one and two patients were flown to Darwin first. The Australian Nursing Federation announced that 16 nurses from the Northern Territories Aeromedical Service are about to be made redundant because the territory government has chosen a new contractor. The territory government used to run aeromedical services with its own staff on Pearl Aviation planes, but Pearl Aviation gave up the contract because of the danger of hitting wallabies on the Catherine airstrip. The government has chosen a new South Wales-based charity, CareFlight, to provide the service for six months from June, and CareFlight will provide its own pilots and medical staff, and the territory nurses will have to reapply for their jobs. The nurses are upset and concerned because they feel they have not been communicated properly with and are worried that if they do apply for jobs with CareFlight, the pay and conditions may be less and CareFlight may not win the ongoing contract. CareFlight has advertised for crew members on its website seeking registered nurses with qualifications in midwifery desirable. Cape Breton Regional Police in Nova Scotia, Canada are reporting another incident involving a green laser pointed towards their aircraft. An Air Canada jazz pilot and the pilot of a medical helicopter both reported a green laser pointed at their cockpits last Friday. The pilot said that the laser originated from the Sydney River. Emergency Health Services spokesman Paul Maynard said a lifelight helicopter was transporting a critical care patient from the Cape Breton Regional Hospital to the QE2 Health Sciences Center in Halifax at the time of the incident. In January, an Air Canada Jazz airplane en route from Sydney to Halifax reported that a green laser was flashed into the cockpit. The incident was reported to Transport Canada, as well as two similar incidents in October involving flights on route to Halifax Stanfield International Airport. The Directorate of Civil Aviation last week asked EMED Rescue 24 to supply approval certificates for onboard medical equipment in an ongoing effort to strengthen air safety regulations in Nambia. With the assistance of the International Civil Aviation Organization, the Directorate is is in the process of tightening air safety regulations and ensuring compliance with them. Although EMED Rescue said that this was the first time that the Directorate had requested this type of documentation, it said it was willing to comply immediately. At issue is lack of authorized approval documents for stretchers used by EMED, the sole Nambian air evacuation company at the moment. 
Finally, a new exhibit called The Winged Angels, U.S. Army Air Force's Flight Nurses in World War II, opened at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. The exhibit includes artifacts such as an original flight nurse blue uniform and all four variations of the flight nurse wings. Also on display is the uniform of the only nurse known to have participated in a glider combat mission during World War II and a flight jacket that belonged to a nurse who received a distinguishing flying cross for her life-saving efforts caring for 24 patients after surviving a crash landing in a C-47. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. In first response today, I will be talking to Tim Pickering, who attended the Association of Air Medical Services Spring Conference in Washington, D.C. from March 17th through 19th, 2010. Tim is currently the Vice President and Region 3 Board Member of the Association of Air Medical Services and the Director of Public Affairs for Aravac EMS Incorporated in West Plains, Missouri. Welcome, Tim, and thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Ed. It's a pleasure to be with you joining the Eero Podcast Network. Oh, thank you. It's uh, Air Medical Today. Um, Tim, before we get into the spring conference, uh, which is why I wanted to have you on, could you provide a wrap-up of the things that you can tell us about from the Ames and Medivac Foundation International uh, Board Meeting, which was held immediately prior last week? Thanks, Ed. Uh, I certainly can address uh, a little bit of what went on at the the board and the Medivac Foundation International meeting. As everybody uh, should be aware, um, Medivac Foundation International is the rebranding and uh, of the former Foundation for Air Medical Research and Education. And I just incurred a $10 fine for saying that, and I'll gladly <laughs> donate to the Medivac Foundation International uh, for that. So it's a plug for, for the foundation as it goes forward. Um, the the two uh, boards reviewed uh, the Air Medical Transport Conference and uh, that was held in San Jose. Uh, last October, and if everybody will recollect uh, who was there, I mean, attendance seemed to be good. It was good uh, in the consideration of the current economy and and the way many other conferences have gone, gone, and the exhibitor space was sold out. And I'd like to remind everybody listening that uh, the next uh, AMTC will be held in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. Please look for the registration information. That will be released soon. And if you're a member, you'll get the info. Or otherwise, please go to ames.org to check for that. And I'll, and I'll have that the, on the show notes uh, too, Tim. Yeah, on the um, total number of participants, did they rank order? Because I know they were doing that for a few years uh, as far as the overall attendance at AMTC. Yes, uh, Yes, Ed, uh, we did, and uh, this was about the, and this is totally a recollection, but I think this was the third best attended AMTC. Wow. Yeah, especially uh, with the economy. Held. Yeah. Yes. Mm. 
That was good. Some of the other issues that uh, the boards looked at, and and it's probably as no surprise to anybody, we spent some time uh, on uh, one day reviewing our budgets. Um, this is the time of the year that we look at budgets, um, and we were reviewing our budgets for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's very obvious the current economy has hit everybody. Um, there has been some realignment of, uh, of AIMS membership through consolidation and merger. And some members have uh, decided no longer to register their individual bases uh, for publication in the uh, the uh, Ames um, organization guide. So that has decreased some of the income. Though we have raised membership uh, fees and rates, um, we're still looking very seriously at both uh, the Ames budget and the Medevac Foundation budget. And it's important if everybody has a chance to look uh, for the news that will be in the next Ames News and Views about the board meeting and all the things that's going on. One other item that I think is very exciting, um, the foundation has brought on board a new fundraising officer, uh, Ms. Leanna Jackson, and has uh, really renewed its efforts to engage in fundraising and to reach out beyond the community. So look for some, some stuff that's going forward on that, and I really encourage everybody to they're considering a charitable donation this year to, to make it to the Foundation International. That's great. I'm sure there'll be more uh, information on Leanna if there aren't, isn't already on the Ames website. Now, if there is, I'll link to that uh, in the show notes. Well, Tim, tell us about the spring conference. That board meeting was before. Tell us about what happened at the spring conference. Well, we were blessed in, in a lot of ways. Um, the, the weather was miserable for the board meeting, and uh, by the time the conference started, it cleared up, and it was 60 degrees in Washington, D.C. Um, we had about 120 people from came from all over, uh, from a lot of places. And uh, on Wednesday, when the conference convened, uh, there were several panel presentations that were very well received and, and briefings. And we obviously always go through a preparation for the Hill visits that are held on Thursday to get everybody uh, aligned and, and to understand how to, to work with legislators and shake their hands. Um, and Wednesday's briefings included folks such as Larry Bueller from the FAA. Um, we had an address by uh, member Zumwalt. Uh, from the National Transportation Safety Board, mm -hmm. and everybody may re recollect uh, he, he led the NTSB's four-day review of uh, HEMES last year. Um, and we had a federal partners discussion, um, which was uh, a very interesting discussion um, by uh, several folks about, uh, you know, what federal agencies are doing and how they're moving forward. During uh, the luncheon, which was sponsored by Augusta Westland, um, Dudley Smith reviewed uh, what's going on with federal disaster preparedness and brought us up to date on current initiatives uh, on many, many pieces, which do include critical care ground and HEMS. And then we wrapped up the, the particular panel program with a group discussion by folks in Washington who represent EMS. Uh, such as uh, Lisa Tofel representing advocates for EMS, Tristan North from the American Ambulance Association, Kevin McGinnis from the National Association of State EMS Officials, um, and Steve Ingley from Airborne Law Enforcement Association and some other folks. And we wrapped up Wednesday with uh, a, a really nice reception held by American Eurocopter. Yeah. And then Thursday, people go out on the Hill visits. Can um, you recall what the the issues were this year? 
Right. Uh, we typically have an, a, a, a group of topics that we want folks to uh, to talk to their legislators about. In particular, this year was Medicare um, in association with uh, health care reform. Um, and Medicare rates and structures, um, supporting uh, the low altitude infrastructure and possible funding for uh, for increasing uh, AWASs and weather reporting systems to help with the, the, the HEMS uh, weather tool. Um, also asking uh, for folks to ensure that their legislators are very aware of the public safety officer's death benefit legislation, which would include uh, folks in private helicopter in EMS um, and in case of their, their line of duty deaths, uh, which is very important. It's been in, on the Hill for several years, and, and we really want to import that. So those are, those are kind of the fundamental topics that uh, folks, as well as their own local topics, were going to talk to the legislators on the Hill about. Did, did you hear feedback, Tim, from people? Because, you know, right during this time you had health care reform, Stuff still going on, especially on the House side, and the FAA reauthorization uh, bill. Did you hear feedback from people that um, the legislators were not available because of that? There was um, some feedback that uh, the the Hill was very busy. Um, just as an anecdote, uh, the reception that we typically hold on Thursday evening was originally scheduled in a side room in the Capitol Visitor Center. And the Democratic caucus requested that room about 1.30 in the afternoon on Thursday. So oh, we actually fortunately got moved into a beautiful atrium in the Capitol's Visitor Center. And uh, for the reception, thanks to the Democratic caucus, we had a much nicer location. So the, obviously the legislators were extremely busy. They were very occupied. But I do know that folks did get in to see legislators that they had appointments for. Um, so that that I think it's a fine balance between what was going on and what was happening. Um, and the Senate FAA reauthorization bill was, you know, progressing, and of course, um, the health care reform deal was being crafted that, right there. So I think people got a, a tremendous amount of exposure to actually how things work in our Congress, which is another really interesting benefit of attending the mid-year conference. Yeah, I, I, I've always told people that, and I know you have too. I mean, it's such a great experience. Um, this is one of the first spring conferences I've missed in quite a long time, and I've always enjoyed going over to the Hill and actually gone over with, you know, groups from my state uh, that I was representing at the time. And, uh, you know, some people get really afraid of that. And as you said, you know, on Wednesday, you talk about the issues. Uh, you can go along, you know, with people if you're uncomfortable, but it's it's really a, a great experience in understanding <clears throat> how the process works. Um and meeting with, you know, your individual legislators, your senators, your representatives. Absolutely. We wrapped up Thursday with the, the Capitol Hill reception to uh, honor the Air Medical Caucus in Congress, um, which was uh, sponsored by Bell Helicopter at the uh, atrium that we were moved to. And this year we... Uh, had a couple of public service awards that we were uh, we were providing to mm -hmm. folks, and that was to honor uh, Representative Cardoza from California, who has become the co-chair of the Air Medical Caucus. 
Interestingly enough, you had mentioned uh, the Hill being occupied. He came directly from a meeting with the president, um, and uh, we were able to honor him, and then he needed to leave immediately to go to the Democratic caucus meeting. We also honored uh, member Zumwalt of the National Transportation Safety Board for his efforts and interest in helicopter and fixed-wing EMS operations, and uh, he is sincerely interested in making improvements, and he certainly brought uh, a tremendous amount of knowledge and ability into uh, the discussions, um, and so he was honored. And finally, uh, our Community Service Award was was, was presented to uh, Alan Watts of MedStar for his development of a comprehensive medical device education program for pre-hospital and professional providers that really is an in-depth program to help folks understand some of the complicated medical devices that people go home with today. Um, and uh, we felt that that was extremely deserving. Excellent. Uh, uh, award. So that's that's how we wrapped up Thursday. Mm-hmm. And then Friday? Friday. Um, the conference concluded with the, a morning session and um, we had a, an extremely moving and very powerful, and I think a significant presentation to the group by three brave, very, very brave flight crew ladies, members, uh, all survivors of their medical crashes. Um, and the presentation really focused their conference attendees on an important group of persons in, in our commend industry. Um, those are folks that are engaged um, in in flight medicine as providers and have been injured and are survivors of an air medical crash. And they belong to uh, a group called uh, the uh, the Survivors Network for Air and Surface Medical Transportation. And the Medevac Foundation International and many individual folks uh, uh, at the during this presentation pledged their commitment to the Survivors Network and their support. I know there's a lot of initiatives that are now going forward because of this presentation. There be to, the ladies are to be commended for bringing forward the issue. And if anyone on uh, listening to the podcast is interested, you can really find a lot more information about this group at their their Facebook site. So go to Facebook and look up Survivors uh, Network. Yeah, I, I got introduced to them at uh, AMTC and working with Tammy Chapman and uh, going to have them on the podcast. I, I heard uh, from her and others how uh, well-received uh, their presentation was. So that is uh, great because it, it is a, an area that, we we've tended to ignore. I mean, we've you know talked about crashes and stuff, but really the effects for people that have been through that, that have survived, that go back into their programs, and uh, so uh, I'm glad that that went over well for them, and that there's it, you know, looking at some funding for them too as they move forward. It, it, it was ex- it was timely. It was extremely well received, and. Um, uh, frankly, there I don't think there were many dry eyes in in the audience, and which I is appropriate. That. Yes, and it was. And then we had a final presentation, which uh, reviewed the federal request for proposal for the study of regionalization of EMS, and that was uh, presented by Doctor uh, Doctors Art Kellerman of the Rand Corporation and Mike Hendrickson of Public Health Service, and Drew Dawson from NHTSA, who was present mm-hmm. as well, to comment. Um, uh, and this is an attempt to uh, 
to look at studying how to regionalize EMS systems, and really they characterized it more as an integration of, of healthcare provision and resources than actual structural regionalization. So that was an interesting uh, presentation, and there there is an, a request for proposal from the federal government out there. Um, and I'm frankly, I, I'm a mess that I didn't write it down to, to give to everybody, but I'm sure if you search, you can find it in the GSO site. Um, but I'd like to comment that you know this for for today's uh, stressors on on lots of folks. Is co this conference was very well attended, had a, a, a wide group of delegates from across the United States, you know, both coasts in the middle and north and south, and a, a large international delegation, particularly from. EHAC, um, uh, the folks in Australia were here, and the folks from the AirMed 2011 uh, conference, which is the large international conference that's held, been held in Europe every three years, which is going to be held in Brighton, England in May of 2011, and I would encourage people to, if they're interested in an English vacation, to, to combine that with it, because it's going to be a very interesting conference. That's excellent. Well, I'm, I'm glad uh, it went well, and I appreciate you taking the um, the time to to talk about it. Tim, you were also uh, uh, during this time um, you were the Ames representative uh, to the FICOM stakeholder meeting. Um, I guess if you could tell our audience or those that don't understand what FICOM stands for or who it is, if you could explain some background and then tell us about the meeting. Thanks, Ed. Um, as the Ames Vice President, uh, I attended the Federal Interagency Committee on EMS uh, stakeholder meeting. And this was a meeting that uh, a large group of stakeholder associations and 911 providers were invited to send representatives to. The, the Federal Interagency Committee on EMS is a committee of uh, folks at the federal level that represent individual federal agencies involved with emergency medical services. There's about eight of them. There's a, a plethora of things that they're, they're involved with. Um, and they they want they like to express that they feel that they're stronger in with collaboration amongst federal agencies than in consolidation of federal agencies. And as a group, they meet three or four times a year, but then they're advised by a working group that's uh, operated directly by National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, NHTSA's EMS folks. And then they're also and supported, and then they're also advised by the National Emergency Medical Services Advisory Council, which is a group that is appointed by the Secretary of the Department of Transportation to represent individual stakeholder groups to meet to advise the FICOMs. Now, I know I've gone through a huge bunch of acronyms, <laughs> and uh, it, our vocabularies in air medicine are, and EMS are full of this. So just remember that the FICOMs are the federal folks funded by the federal government. The NEMSAC are the stakeholder folks that advise the FICOMs. And this meeting was a two-day meeting of stakeholders from a broad range of alphabet associations and groups, firefighters to ground EMS to air to PSAP, public safety answering point people, communications folks, a huge diverse talent of, of a lot of people. And they were brought together as a means for the FICOMs 
to gain an understanding of what stakeholders feel are current significant issues, and we were charged to develop and to present statements about the future of EMS and those issues. So they, they gave us a broad overview of FICOMS, and then we broke into four separate groups, and the four groups were operations, governance, technology, and I'm trying to remember uh, administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and we met for about two days, day and a half, and uh, worked through a whole set of issues and then developed uh, 12 significant issues that we made recommendations on implementation to to the FICOMs. Now, we were not to make consensus as a group or to vote. We were to express our opinions and to develop statements about issues. And those 12 issues were how to develop a lead federal EMS agency, to establish national standards for regulations, expanded scope of practice for pre-hospital providers, the vision for the next generation of EMS, how to establish a national responder database, how to establish a national EMS academy, how to ensure adequate funding for safety, how to establish a series of linkages for healthcare information integration from event recognition to patient discharge, how to facilitate the collection, access, and use of standardized data in support of research and evaluation to inform clinical practice, how to establish national practitioner standards, how to establish national ambulance vehicle standards, and finally, as a kind of a general question, but as an identity crisis, who really is emergency medical service? So all the, that material uh, that was developed as, as a result of this meeting will be forwarded to the Federal Interagency Committee on EMS, FICOMS, for their review in the minutes and action. And as was expressed to us when, in the timeline, currently – the federal government's working on the 2012 budget process. So anything and any action that would come from these uh, results would be budgetarily have to be funded in 2012 or 2013 to move forward. So it's a long-term view. It was a very interesting meeting, a lot of very significant issues for both ground and air critical care were brought forward and represented. And I think um, there, there, there will be some, some good things that, that come out of this. We'll, the proof in the pudding will be now that we've engaged in the brainstorming, you know, what's the execution. Um, and so please look on authoritative places uh, in, in other journals and possibly on, in your future podcasts for more information about what's coming out of this. And they, they also uh, heard us expressed that we felt that this kind of meeting should take place about every year or two years so that they can listen to the folks at the pointy end of the spear, the people who are really doing the job about what the federal can, government can do to, to, to help emergency medical services. I see. So, Tim, was there then specific um, recommendations under each of those items that went yes, forward? Yes, there were, and they, they were implementation recommendations um, I see. And, and trying to flesh the issue out a little bit more. Um, we we added we had about seventy separate uh, flip chart pages taped up on the wall by the time this was done. 
um, and how to crunch all that stuff together is is obviously a, a job that's being undertaken by the folks at NHTSA right now. So this um, isn't yeah. publicly available. You can't go into the the details of this. This is something that... not right now. Yeah. Um, they expressed that any f- information that comes from this would be freely available at ems.gov. Um, that is the federal government's authoritative uh, website for EMS materials. And so that would be the place to check for for results or information about okay and this. i'll I'll put that on the uh, in the show notes too I, yeah, I was particularly interested in uh, you know that sort of vision for next generation and then this, this identity crisis so those are pique my uh, interest uh, a little bit so i'll be I'll be looking uh, forward to to seeing that absolutely there was the one a very cogent thought that i thought would came through a lot of people is everybody feels there should be some leading federal ems agency but how to do it and what they would do no one could define that's part of the identity crisis and the other statement um give credit to i uh, can't even remember who brought it forward but is to make ems a noun not an adjective hmm. um as as a third service we're referred to as an adjective, not as a noun, such as fire and police. Yes. But, uh, let's let's see how things develop and go yeah. forward. Yeah. Well, we'll have to uh, you have to keep us informed on on that. Well, Tim, anything else from the recent time in D.C. from the board meeting, spring conference, or the FICOMS meeting that you'd like to say? No, I I I'm I. I encourage people that if you can come, it, it's a valuable experience. You, you get it's a very it, it is a smaller conference, but it's it's an opportunity to uh, visit and network with with many folks who are making decisions in our com industry. Um, and so it it it's well worth it. And even if you can't come visit your legislators, as somebody who works with legislators a lot, uh, I think uh, the ability to go shake a legislator's hand and tell him what you truly think about an issue is is the foundation of where we are in the United States. And uh, that is a plug for a little bit of activism as we go forward in in the times. Right. Well, I, I wanted to tell our listeners that I'm very pleased to announce that Tim will be a regular contributor to the podcast with a feature called the Come Industry Update. And Come Industry is actually a term that Tim came up with. It was back when we were constantly going back, you know, are we a community? Or are we an industry? Or are we both? And Tim says, we're both. So we're calling it Come Industry. So uh, Tim will be doing that. It will be. Uh, He'll be providing regular updates on uh, general and overall trends in, in air medical and our critical care transport community. So, Tim, I appreciate you uh, taking that on for the, the podcast. I look forward to it, Ed. I think it'll, we'll all have a lot of fun, and, fun, and I hope uh, I'll be able to share with some information that folks wouldn't normally be able to uh, access or to know about um, I, I, a lot of people that I've worked with uh, know that I, I like to communicate very openly and regularly, and I, this is just an extension of some things I've done for a long time. And it, I look forward to, to sharing and visiting, and if people have things that uh, they think is important that I might have missed, uh, you certainly can we'll, – we'll figure out how people can reach me uh, to, to make sure that we bring the issues forward on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's be exciting. Yeah, yeah. T- Tim is, uh, does a little – email kind of update. And you do that, what, two or three times a week. And it, it is the most comprehensive uh, uh, email that I ever get. I, I always 
take time and, and read through it. And, and it's not just some industry thing. You put some stuff on general health care. And, you know, I know you're a, a techie like me, throw in some stuff there. So it, it's, it's always fun to read. So uh, it's uh, great to have you on there. Well, Tim, thanks great. for taking the time to be on the show today. I know always catching up with you is, uh, you know, I, I need to have a GPS thing watching you, you know, just so you know, it would be like, you know, all over the United States. So I, I know I'm catching up with you in an airport uh, uh, today, or at least a hotel near an airport. So uh, thanks so much hey, uh, for taking the time, Tim. You're quite welcome, Ed. Take good care, everybody. Talk to you soon. Today I am interviewing David Kearns, the coordinator of the Concern Network. David is the clinical coordinator at Flight for Life Colorado, which is based at St. Anthony's Hospital in Denver, Colorado. He has been a flight nurse since 1981 and has served in several positions at Flight for Life Colorado since 1988. David has been the coordinator of the Concern Network since the retirement of the late Roseanne Krantz in 2004. He helped move the Concern Network in 2000 in conjunction with Raleigh Parrish from FlightWeb.com to the current email system notification from the older fax-based one. David is the current Region 2 board member of the Association of Air Medical Services and a past board member of the Air and Surface Transport Nurses Association from 1998 to 2002. He served as president from 2001 to 2002. He has delivered presentations on physiologic monitoring, post-of-care technology, prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonia, and the history of the Concern Network at past air medical transport conferences and clinical mid-year meetings. He graduated from Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska in 1981 with a bachelor's in science and nursing and from the University of Colorado in 1994 in Denver, Colorado with a master's in nursing. David lives in Lakewood, Colorado and has interest in things historical, things that fly, fitness, and computer technology. Welcome back to the podcast, David, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me back. Well, I think the first thing we probably all want to know about uh, the Concern Network is uh, it is an acronym. What does it stand for? The, the acronym, as it was originally devised, stood for Cooperative Network Call for Emergency Regional Notification. So I, the, uh, the originators at that time were trying to find a way to use the word concerned because they were trying to find a way to reflect their concern for the uh, for operations that were having problems that were that, that had had a crash or or an accident. I see. Uh, very good, good acronym. Tell us about some of the early history of the Concern Network, and specifically, what factors brought about the development of the program in 1984. You have to think back to what things were like in 1984. There was no internet in those days. If you were working in a hospital and you wanted to make a long-distance telephone call, you had to call the operator and basically plead your case. Um, it was not an easy matter. Fax machines were somewhat the same way. Uh, making a long-distance call through the fax machine required approval. So communications as they, uh, as they existed then were 
much more regional, much more local. It, um, the air medical industry was still pretty much in a fledgling state at that point. Programs were developing rapidly, and the safety structures were not in place at, at that time either. It was becoming apparent that programs could have a an accident, could have a crash, and the other members of the air medical community may not know about it. They may not have heard about it for some time after the event. They weren't as well covered in the press at that time, and again, there was no internet to get that word out. The National Flight Nurses Association at that time had a, a board member by the name of Andrew Barrett, and he came up with the idea of developing a telephone tree where the board members themselves would uh, be be notified of an event, mm-hmm. and then they would individually call all of the flight programs that they that they knew of at that time, and just get that word out. It uh, it was a way at that time of, of raising consciousness that something had happened, and allowed the other member programs to um, send condolences and to kind of help those programs in, in any way that they could. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us too, it, how is the Concern Network organized? Is it a separate organization or is it part of the Air and Surface Transport Nurses Association? Well, it's we consider it housed in the under ASNA right now. Mm-hmm. As um, when Andrew Barrett first devised it, he was with the the National Flight Nurses at that time, then ASNA. But he actually left the field very shortly after he got this going. And Roseanne Kranz, who was with Ashbeams at that time, the, the forerunner of Ames, took it up. She liked the idea and wanted to see it continue. And under Roseanne, uh, who was a program director in Fargo at that time, uh, the program expanded to a fax tree pretty much under her guidance and under the uh, uh, under the guidance of, of Ash Beams and then Ames. In the late 90s, um, early 2000, we convinced Roseanne that Concern needed to move away from the fax tree because of some of the problems that were developing with that. And we convinced her to take it electronic um, so at that point, it was kind of a partnership between Ames and ASNA. So it doesn't—it's not—it doesn't exist as a department, or it doesn't have its own board. It's basically a voluntary effort on the part of myself and the uh, staff at the St. Anthony Communication Center here in Denver. I see. Do you have a board of directors or an advisory group, David? I've at times reached out to various members of the community for advice and for some guidance with particular issues. It's been on my mind to develop an advisory, a formal advisory board for some time so that um, we can have input from the community on how, how concern is functioning and what changes they would like to see. I see. Have you had input from other, uh, any of the other associations, uh, in particular maybe the pilots? about uh, the Concern Network? The pilots have had a lot to say over the years about how the bulletins uh, appear and how they're worded. It turned out, it turns out that most of the, of the text for the bulletins is usually done by a program director 
or Chief Legner's, not necessarily somebody with an aviation background. So not being an aviator, they may not use terminology correctly, and that's, but that's how the bulletins were going out. Unfortunately, we found at one point that um, the term hard landing was being used quite often. That has a very specific definition according to the NTSB and FAA. And certain situations were being labeled as hard landings that had not been reported to the, to the NTSB. And through concern, the NTSB was learning of situations that they felt they needed to investigate. I see. So through some dialogue with, uh, with NEMSPA, we were able to refine the language that we use. So now when the bulletins come in, we can correct those. We can correct that terminology and make sure that we're putting out the information uh, in a proper way, in a, in a responsible way. I see. So when, if, if I put a post in that wasn't technically correct, you would correct that before it would actually go out? Correct. Mm -hmm. And when we talk a little bit about how the bulletins are actually generated, I can explain a little bit how that happens. Okay. Well, I wanted to finish up. You had started, you know, that this started out as a phone tree, went to a fax-based system. Uh, you've helped move it to an email system. Are you looking at other methodologies for the future, such as Twitter or some type of, uh, you know, really simple syndication or RSS-based system? Raleigh Parish was instrumental in helping us move this to the email format. Mm -hmm. And he's had in, in mind to, to work with some of those newer technologies, some of those newer formats. My concern with doing that is you know, we currently have about 4,000 email addresses in our database. Um, that's a, a sizable population. My concern is that not all of them may use some of the newer technologies. Um, if we migrate it one direction or the other, I just want to make sure that it, that we reach a sizable, you know, an equivalent number of people, and that we don't have anybody drop off in case the email system should go away. I want to make sure that it's replaced with something else that's equally as reliable. Right, and it might be a, even a transitional period. Did you have that transitional period when you went from fax to email? Was that a, a time well, period? Well, we did. It, it mm -hmm. It's taken some time to get to that 4,000 level, of course. Right. And interestingly, Roseanne was not terrifically in favor of doing it. She didn't want to get rid of the fax network at that time because she felt that a lot of the recipients weren't up on email yet. So there was that that period where we had both, uh, both formats being used. I see. Yeah, there's even things that, you know, RSS and a lot of the email clients now, you can actually incorporate that right into your uh, email by subscribing to an RSS feed. So it, it's like an email, uh, very similar. But you're right, it takes another, you know, leap or, or transition. Which leads me to the next question. Um, you know, who is really able to issue a posting to the Concern Network and and do they require approval? And I, I guess just tell us about the whole process from start to, to end. And, you know, assuming I'm a program director and I turn in a uh, posting to you. Our operating um, parameters have called for, the, for a bulletin to be issued by a, an operations management. So we want somebody who has the authority to speak in the name of, of that operation. 
So typically you're looking at management level. When they when an event occurs and an operation desires to issue a bulletin, there is a template on our webpage that they can go to and fill in the details and then hit send. At that point, the the bulletin template um, shows up on an email system in the communication center at St. Anthony Hospital in Denver. And the communication specialist on duty will uh, review it quickly and then notify me so that um, I know that there's something waiting for us. During the during business hours, the communication specialist will then make a confirmatory phone call to that operation uh, using some independent source of for a phone number. So we use the AIMS directory or websites, um, whatever we can do to kind of independently contact that operation and try to touch base with the person whose name is at the bottom of the bulletin. So we can make sure that the information is, um, is validated and that it's authorized by that operation. We've had some instances where uh, an operation across town knows of, of an event or hears mm -hmm. a rumor event with a competitor and has tried to issue a bulletin in their name. Um, I will sometimes also get phone calls from programs across town or across the region. It's basically tattling on the other operations saying, so-and-so had this happen and they didn't put out a concern bulletin. I just want you to know about it. I say, well, thank you. Um, it is voluntary. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the means to force any operation into submitting a bulletin. Um, it's looked upon favorably by Keynes. It is a recommended practice, but it's not it's not mandatory. Do, do you know how many programs, you know, the percentage-wise, have you had any type of calculation of the incidents and accidents, crashes that are out there, um, the percentage that do have notification through concern? It it does vary, and it sometimes varies with the severity of of the event. Uh, I've noticed a little bit of a drop off in um, in bulletins when there's a fatal event. Um, however, with things less than that, I would say that the majority of current operations um, will issue a bulletin. It's there seems to be a little more of a lag than there used to be, and, and what I'm finding is that a lot of the bulletins for for operations that are part of very large corporations have to have them reviewed by their legal departments first, and they do a significant amount of wordsmithing before they submit them. Um, so there there may be a, a lag of a few days to a week or more sometimes before a bulletin is issued. Mm-hmm. Especially these days with the internet and, and news. I mean, Air Medical Today itself is a good example where I'm, you know, constantly mining uh, information. So I'll sometimes get get that before that there's a concern posting. But that's part of the process that you're going through. You want to verify and make sure. And the program has to report it to you. The concern network does not report out unless the program gives Correct. you. Yeah, okay. Um, tell us the situations that merit a program issuing a bulletin. 
to the network? I mean, are, are there things that definitely should and some that may be in the gray area and some that, you know, those are not events that get posted? Yeah, of course, you know, we would like to to be able to to help with the fatal events as not just the event itself, but also with follow-up information such as memorial services or, or things like that. Um, sometimes it's, it's helpful to know when those things are occurring and we can get the, get that word out as well. Mm-hmm. But we look at is a fairly wide variety of situations. Um, usually whenever something occurs in a course of a flight or a ground transport, that results in an emergency or a precautionary termination of the trip. So that can be uh, a situation where there's enough damage to put the aircraft out of service, mm-hmm. inspection or repair, um, or if there's injury to one of the occupants. Um, some of those things can be an engine or control failure, can be a bird strike, an abrupt maneuver, uh, or a collision. Um, some things are specific to air transport, some things are specific to ground transport. So we kind of look at both of those and say, you know, you might have an animal strike or you might have a rollover um, or a a collision. Precautionary landings and stops might merit a bulletin if it felt like something was found that they want, that the operation wants to alert other operations about, especially if it's in the same airframe or the same make and model of ambulance. They found something of a maintenance nature or something of a some kind of a defect in the in the construction that they would like to notify the, the rest of the community about. Um, which is sometimes one of the bigger uses of a of the concern network. And then again, um, follow up. One of the issues that we have is we know of an event, we know that something happened, but then we lose that event, we lose the follow up on it what was found. We know that they made an emergency landing because of a of a panel light or a, a gauge indication or a strange sound. But then we we often don't hear what the follow up was. What did the mechanics find? And is there some benefit to letting the rest of the community community know about that so that another mechanic can go out and lift up the cat wings and inspect that part. Um, so in some respects, it's kind of like a, a grassroots um, advisory that you would you know, ordinarily get from the from the FAA or NTSB or the aircraft manufacturer. It's a way of maybe sometimes getting that that word out a little bit earlier, a little more informally. One of the other things I've noticed, David, too, is that when people put the posts up and they kind of at the end, what did we learn from this or what did we change? I, I find that very valuable. Again, that that provides that loop closure. Right. Um, that whenever I speak with a manager about a situation where we don't know what happened, I, I always encourage them to um, call me back or to issue a, a follow-up when they do learn so that the rest of the community can close that loop and say, okay, that problem is resolved. We know what happened there. And, and what can we learn from that? Yeah. 
How long after an event should a program post? I mean, is there a recommendation? I, I know you mentioned that sometimes, you know, legal departments or risk management departments that hospitals or services are involved, but, you know, what would be the ideal? You know, that's, uh, that can be a little bit tricky just because, again, just knowing that something happened has value especially if it's in an operation where you have friends or colleagues across the country who may not be aware that you were involved in some kind of situation and it gives them the ability to provide moral support or to to call you up and say, gosh, I'm glad you're okay. Um, so in some respects, the closer to the event it, it occurs, the more benefit there may be to, to those that are involved. And then again, if you give it a little bit of time, you might learn a little bit more about why something happened right. and be able to get that information out. Right. So there is benefit to both immediate and delayed. You kind of have to decide you know, what's going to work best for your operation. But it sounds like from you, though, it would be good to at least get the notification out. You know, And, and again, these days, pretty much the news is already out there, but at least acknowledgement up from the program that, yes, this is what ha- has happened, and then maybe a follow-up rather than, you know, waiting weeks later to, to put that information out. So people can do multiple postings on the same incident. Correct. Yeah. And there is that, that follow-up template that's available okay. to do that. Um, let's talk, well, before we get there, has Kames, um has there been an initiative with Kames to to make this a requirement of a, of a CAMES accredited program rather than just recommended? They have, they have given that consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a couple of the editions, they have thought that they would make that a new standard. And they have held off doing that, um, ma- making it an absolute requirement. I, I'm not sure exactly why I've, I've spoken to a, to with Eileen Frazier about it a couple of times, um, but they, they have held just short of, of making it a requirement. I do know that when your site surveyors come out, if you had significant events and you have not submitted them to the concern bullet, to the concern network, you know they'll they'll kind of look at you a little differently and ask you perhaps why you didn't. I don't think that it, it counts against you in your in your site survey, but it is something that they look upon favorably. It it just seems from a quality management and loop closure point of view, that information helps other programs too and helps your own program. Exactly. Have, have you gotten pushback from uh the error operators um for you know they really don't want that that news out, um, or, or you know, you said from the, the legal departments or from the, the program itself, you know, perhaps upper-level management, uh, that, you know, we really don't want to have this posted out. You know, interestingly, I find that some of, some of our more regular, I don't want to say regular, but our more, um, those operations that tend to use concern more more faithfully, are the larger operators. Um, Seth Myers from Arivac Life Team has been very diligent in 
letting us know about these situations. And quite often he is the one to send me the information on, on an event. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's the smaller operations that are kind of tucked out of the way that tend to perhaps not report something. Let's talk about the, and and that's good. That I'm I'm glad to hear that. Let's talk about the uh, the website, the concern website itself. Um, I know that you can go back and view prior postings. Um, is there a lag between you know the folks that are subscribed to the list and approved versus when information becomes publicly available? And are there certain people that are not approved to be on? the list, the initial listing. Right. There, there is a lag between an event and a posting to the archive. The, the benefit to being, to having it sent to your email is that it indicates that you are a member of the community and that you have um, access to this information as soon as it is posted. The, uh, the process of getting added to the list or being added to the list involves using the the template on the on the website and indicating that you have a connection to the community. You're you are a flight nurse, you're a pilot, you're a program director, whatever that is. And uh, I will then uh, add your name to to the email list when we have um, an event and an we issue a bulletin. If you're on the list, you'll get that information immediately. If you're not on the list, then at some point when the information goes up on the archive, then you'll be able to see it. So, so there is an approval process. So, if um, someone signs up that is not in the community, um, they would not be approved. Is that correct? Yeah, I I do restrict it to to members of the community. I've had requests from um, news reporters. I've had requests from nursing students and from paramedic students who think that at some point they would like to go into your medical transport. And I tell them that this is really a benefit uh, of membership in the community. I can understand you wanting to, to hear about these things, but that this is something that we really restrict to, to the members of our community. Um, the press, I, t- I tend to restrict for obvious reasons. Um, I do get um, phone calls from reporters fairly regularly mm-hmm. about how the Concern Network works and sometimes about specific events. And I, I really I really just try not to take their calls. Um, on, the, on the website itself, it does list you know, who who can be on the list. I've also, we've had some extremely positive feedback from NTSB members and the FAA. At first, we were very fearful of having them on the list. We thought that we would be tattling on our own or that uh, people would get into trouble. But it's actually helped them to get a, a handle on the scope of our safety issues. And they have utilized the Concern Network in a very positive way. And uh, we we have on the list now many NTSB investigators. I did not know that. And, and looking at how people use it, let's talk about an individual pr- 
program. Um, what 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 can a program or an individual learn um, from the postings? I mean, um, what what value are they? You know, in their own quality management programs. There's a variety of levels of benefit, I believe. The first is, of course, simply knowing that something has happened to someone in, in our community. When you've been flying or been doing crown transport for a while, you get to know people around the country. And sometimes this may be your first indication that something has happened to them or with their operation. So it, it provides a mechanism for emotional and, and moral support. <clears throat> the individual can also get a feel for what's happening in a, in a safety sense in, in, the, in the industry. What is happening with, with aircraft or are there certain trends um, that, they, that, they can that they can detect? Um, it lets them know that things can happen, and it helps, I think, in some ways to prevent complacency. If you don't hear of anything happening, especially those situations that don't rise above a formal reporting threshold to the NTSB or the FAA, it reminds you that things happen because of chains of errors. So it, it I think it allows people to... Um, think about those things before they do rise to a greater level. I know of many operations that utilize the bulletins in a, um, in a regular way. It, it, they are a feature of their safety meetings and their staff meetings. And to, again, kind of serve as that reminder, that little nag that, hey, these people are flying in an A-star also and this happened to them. Or these people were going down the road and um, they were going code three in an ambulance and somebody blew a red light and they weren't they weren't restrained in the back. So it becomes those it becomes a little persistent reminder that there is an aspect of hazard in, in what we do. And in it's my hope that it, it prevents that complacency that would allow people to stop checking things and to um, to not be careful. I think that's a really good point. I know when I've been a program director, I've always tried to have the concern monitoring, you know, in our safety committee or safety management program, because that's how you learn, because um, there are, you know, it's not just like aircraft, it might be, um, you know, I think there was a recent posting on, you know, NVGs at night and, and, and things like that, uh, that really help people learn about what the risks are and that would change their practices. So I, do you know the percentages, David, of, of people that actually incorporate that? Or do you hear from programs that have incorporated that into their safety programs? I, I do know of many. I, I could mm -hmm. not give you an absolute percentage or number. Um, I, what I hear is that when a person's email address has for some reason changed or dropped off and they're not getting the bulletins, I will get a, an email asking, please put me back on because I need these for my staff meetings. And I'm always kind of gratified to hear that. It's nice to know that they are being utilized 
instead of just maybe shoved in a binder or stuck on a wall somewhere. Right. I noticed also you have a hazard awareness reporting page um, on the website. Um, what are you trying to accomplish with this, and what is the difference between this type of posting uh, than a regular concern posting? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, HARP is something that I came up with, I think, in about 2000 or 1999. Mm -hmm. The concern bulletins are issued by management, and they are identified to a particular program. There's a date and a time. So the, the community knows that something happened with that operation. HARP was intended to be a, a means for a staff-level person to be able to say, we just had something happen here, and we almost got killed. Um, it's, not, it's meant to be a, a means of anonymously alerting the community, alerting your colleagues that you found yourself in a really bad situation or a potentially bad situation. You were able to catch something before it got to the level of requiring a concern bulletin. Um, I've had, over the years, we've had situations with um, equipment not being restrained and flying through a cabin and just missing somebody. We've had uh, situations of... of um, cowling latches and door latches where something, nobody got hurt. There was no damage, but it could have. And it was one of those, one of those situations where they went back to their base and they wrote a new guideline or they wrote a new policy or they revised something that they had been doing to that point because it had never been a problem. And they changed something in their operation to make sure that they didn't get into that situation again. That was my hope with with creating HARP, that we could provide a means to capture those events and just kind of send that word out, hey, this almost happened to me. I just want to let you know so it doesn't happen to you. Um, now, now, those aren't emailed out, though, right? Correct. And so that's just on, I, I know on the website you have, have those listed, so that's the only place that folks can access that information? Right. We've talked about taking the HARP situations and making them email as well. They, there's, there's not a lot of them, so it would not be that difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And I've I, been speaking with Lorelei about that for some time, about taking that to an email level. How do you prevent, let's say that someone's on the list and they happen to be a a crew member um, and then are subsequently leave and it's kind of a, a sour grapes, might not be true, but kind of, um, you know, around the management of the organization. Do you check back um, with the management of the organization or is that information not on the posting? If it's a HARP posting, um those are intentionally made anonymous, and the um, before they go out, they are they are scanned to make sure that there are there is no identifying information in there. Um, so I will I will sanitize it to whatever extent I need to to make sure that I'm not identifying or singling out a particular operation. I see. There there have been attempts to do that through HARP. 
So I've, I've always been very careful to, uh, to make sure that a program can't be singled out that way. Mm-hmm. Again, that's the other reason with the concern bulletins to make the confirmatory phone call back to the person who has requested the bulletin and using an independent means. If, sometimes people will put a phone number on there for us to call. And I will say, don't use that number. Go to the Ames directory or go to the website and and find the number and make sure that that person is actually authorized to speak to that operation. So, so the HARP information is really not specific um, to. Uh, you can't really identify who the organization is, where they're at, or right. who's posting this. It's just a means to maybe learn from things that are happening. Correct. Okay. What are the plans for the future of the Concern Network? What do you have in mind? There are some discussions underway currently with a couple of interesting uh, organizations, including Raleigh Parish and myself, where it's kind of hoped that Concern could either develop into or be combined with some other notification systems to be a little more global in its scope to be able to look at ground transport situations more than we do now, Mm -hmm. Um, to look at patient safety situations such as medication errors or um, failure to interpret a monitor correctly or something like that where there could be patient harm. Um, it's a little tricky right now looking at that because it seems that there are so many different reporting systems developed and being developed right now, um, just even from an aviation perspective. Um, aviation companies have their own reporting systems, uh, internal primarily, similar to the AIDMORE system that Air Methods uses. There are reporting systems, you know, of course, through the NTSB and FAA. There's uh, NS, I think it's NSRS through NASA. There are mechanisms for commercial pilots, uh, airliner pilots, to report situations. and in so doing, grants them a level of protection so that their licenses aren't um, aren't, aren't jeopardized. Mm-hmm. So there's there is a, a large number of reporting systems in in the community right now, and then on the on the medical side, you know there are device reporting pages and untoward medication reporting systems. It. The, the discussions that we're having right now are toward can we find a kind of a one-stop place for all of these reports to be generated or to, for those reports to come to so that we don't have silos of information out in the community. So it's difficult if you're a, a researcher or a, a regulator and you're trying to get a handle on a particular problem you've got to go to so many different places to look at the data and that data is in a variety of formats. On, on patient specific information though, don't you sort of cross into uh, HIPAA issues? Only 
No, not as long as the data is blinded. Mm-hmm. As long as, as long as there's no um, personal patient information in there, I see. It, it should not have a problem. And, and does is there? I, I know the Concern Network has postings, especially around programs that have critical care transport. At least those are the ones that I remember uh, seeing. Uh, does the ground uh, industry or AAA have a comparable type of program? My understanding is that there is not. Um, we have looked for that type of information, mm-hmm. not found any um, any one group that has taken on the ALS or BLS ground transport community. Our postings have tended to be at the CCT level and above, primarily because a lot of those operations are connected to flight programs and you have flight personnel staffing right. those, right. those vehicles. Right. So that's why we tend to get those types of postings. Um, we have been approached um, two or three times actually over the years to uh, to handle the the ALS and BLS ground transport community as well, and I've I've not been opposed to it. Is it, what seems to happen is that when we get into those discussions, we we can't seem to to find that one group that would like to kind of take it on from that side and to help us get that word out. Um, and so those efforts tend to kind of dwindle. But there, I think there is absolutely a need to to have that because there are so many situations that just kind of go um, that that occur and that are just not communicated to the to the community and to um, to researchers and to investigators so that we have a handle on just how bad that problem is. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Maybe a little harder. Um... Than to put together, as you've said. Uh, anything else as far as uh, future things for the network? No, it, it. We want to. We want to keep concern relevant. We want to keep it uh, as easy to use as possible. We would like to look to look at the newer technologies, and if it looks like they would serve the community better. I have no problem with with going up to the to that level and, and taking those next steps. Mm-hmm. And Raleigh has been he's always kind of on that on that cutting edge of, of what's happening. And uh, we we do have um, discussions about doing that. Yeah, he's so at some point you, you may see you know some different format. Yeah, he's he's been such a, an asset to our community with with FlightWeb and all the time and effort that he has put into to all these because it, it's they're really labors of love and this is for you too. This is an in addition to uh, your regular job. Yeah, I I can't say enough positive about about Raleigh Parish and his contributions. Absolutely. Well, David, we're nearing the end. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the Concern Network? I do welcome feedback. I do um, like to know, good or, good or bad, how well the the system is working for people. Um, again, it, I 
if it is reaching that stage where perhaps it's becoming a dinosaur and it's not relevant any longer, if it's not serving the community, you know, we can we can certainly shut it down. If the community feels that it's still a benefit, that it still is serving them, then I am more than happy to con- to continue the effort. I want to I gotta put a put in a little bit of a plug for the communication center at St. Anthony Hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll answer the telephones and make those confirmatory phone calls. And they're often the first ones to learn of a of a really bad situation before the the rest of the community does. And they take that that role very, very seriously. And um, they work very hard to make sure that uh, that they do a good job. So I just wanted to make everybody aware that 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 group is a big part of how how concern works. That's I'm I'm glad you said that because I don't think a lot of people realize you know how this system works, and that's why I wanted to to have you on the podcast uh, so people understand that. But uh, also the infrastructure there and the support you have. Uh, from the hospital, so that that is fantastic. I'd also like to um, announce uh, today, uh, David and I. Uh, David is going to be a regular uh, contributor to Air Medical Medical Today uh, podcast, um, and when he has information about postings, um, he will come on the show. And I'm hoping that we can can learn from that because I think that's really the the big thing here is how we as uh, individual programs, how we as a community uh, can learn from the things posted. So uh, uh, David's feature will be called Concern Update with David Karenson. David, I appreciate you uh, being able to do that. Thank you for, for allowing us, for allowing me to do that. Well, thanks so much again for being on the podcast. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time and now being a regular contributor and and thank you for what you're doing with the concern network this is a a, a fantastic uh effort uh that you've uh been involved with for several years and and now coordinating so thank you thank you very much Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Please keep your thoughts and prayers with the crew, family members, and friends of the Hospital Wing Air Medical Program after their tragic crash this week. Take care and fly safe.